Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. So why is it, if, uh, for the people that are new, why is it that people get here and, and uh, tell their stories? Why can't we just all memorize the big book and, uh, and learn what we need to learn? Why do we have these these uh, speaker meetings? That's what I got sober on with speaker meetings. Uh, and the big book on, on page XII, it says, we hope you may pause in reading one of the 44 personal stories and think, yes, that has happened to me. But more important, yes, I felt like that. Or most importantly, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. I saw one person when they entered the room said that they were drinking today, but they stopped and they're sitting here in a meeting in their home safely, thank God. So um, the highest rank you get in Alcoholics Anonymous is sober. It's not speaker. Believe me, it's not speaker. Um, so what are we supposed to to do when we get up here and we give our talk. And if you're new, pay attention because one of these days you're going to be giving your talk. Everybody gets to do it. When it's your turn in the bucket, it's your turn. And here's what Bill Wilson said that we're supposed to do. On page 29 of the big book, it says each individual in their personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, how he established his relationship with God. Notice it doesn't talk much about puking, arrest records, uh, divorces, bruises, cuts, but believe me, I've, I've been through all that stuff, but, um, but we qualify, we tell our story about how, well, what we used to be like, and sometimes it, it, uh, it really identifies with a lot of people, so that's why we do that, but we really, we, guys that I hang out with love to embellish the part about recovery, so I'm, I'm going to get to that pretty quick, so at, uh, at 34 years, it, I just want to welcome the new people and, and just tell you this. This is what was told to me in 1987, that your price of admission has been paid. You don't have to say anything, pray anything, or play anything. You just have to just welcome. Come all the way in, grab a seat, grab a cup of coffee, and just sit down and relax. Because al- alcoholism always had a noise to it. And for some, it still does. If you think about the noise of your alcoholism, a lot of times it's screaming, yelling, gnashing, the, the crashing of metal and car wrecks, the, uh, the, the, uh, the crying of the children. And recovery also has a noise to it. We call it the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what a lot of us do right now. If you imagine the, the 70 or so people that are in this room, even when you go sit in a face-to-face meeting, you'll, you'll, you will experience the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is when they start, they said, we're going to open the meeting with a moment of silence. By God, we have a moment of silence. You ever tried that in a bar? Excuse me. I'd like a moment of silence, please, before I, nope, you're not going to get it. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have this moment of silence. And that's where you start hearing the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. For a bunch of erstwhile crazy alcoholics to be able to be quiet and listen to one person talk is an amazing spiritual experience. And the uh, the music of recovery has a lot to do with love, service, uh, joy, tears, laughter. It's a whole lot different than the noise that we had in active alcoholism. <clears throat> so I'm a retired Air Force guy. I spent 20 years, 10 months and four days in the Air Force. You can tell I didn't count. And the, the last six years, I was sober. And that was the best part of my military career. I retired in 1994 and I opened up a construction business. To this day, I still have it. 
Um, and uh, and it's a busy business. It feeds a lot of feeds a lot of people. Um, and we have a lot of family members in it, and a lot of guys that have been with me for decades. I've had this business for 29 years. And uh, and Angie and I get to live in this beautiful place called Destin. We call it Disney Destin. It's a place where really a lot, it's like Disney. A lot of people dream about one day just being able to visit. Destin is a beautiful place. That's why we, that's why we picked this place. For all these years, I lived 30 miles north. And I used to hate it whenever I had to leave these emerald green waters and the sugar white beach to go home. So we just decided that when we got married, we went to, we wanted to move to the beach. So we did. We have 11 grandchildren. You got to have something for a draw card. I was raised the, uh, the son of a naval officer. He used to be enlisted. And, uh, and through hard work and going to, uh, to night school, to college, long before, we're talking in the 60s, long before the internet and Google and word search. Um, my dad got a, a, a bachelor's degree and they promoted him to a naval officer. And uh, we still call him the commander. He just passed away uh, eight months ago. Um, at 93 years old, I still have my darling mother. I'm going to go visit her. Angie's sending me over there to visit her for a, a little over a week. She's going to be 92 on Angie's birthday and her birthday, which is the 15th of June. But Angie says her birthday trumps hers. So I get to go spend a week with mom. And uh, Angie's going to be over. Uh, she's leaving this weekend to go to Girl Stock with about 800 women. There's no cologne. It's going to all be perfume. So she'll, yeah, every time we go to get, do one of these wonderful functions, we always come back a better person and a better spouse and a better friend. The, uh, so my mom, we still call her the Lady Mary because she's an, she's an amazing person. I traveled the world um, when I was growing up being a Navy brat. Uh, my brother was born, I was born in Paris Island, Marine Corps boot camp. The Navy medical people always stay with the Marines. Uh, my brother was born in Yokohama, Japan. My sister was born in Cherry Point Marine Corps Station, North Carolina. And I spent all my teenage years, the uh, formative years, in Key West, in Cuba, back and forth, back and forth. I graduated high school in the, the Navy base down in Cuba. And, uh, and the reason I'm telling you that is I was raised with, in the, under strict military discipline, the best ethics in the world. I hated it at the time. Um, but my dad and mom really kept the thumb down on me. Uh, and, and I was a rebellious, you know, back then they, back then they called us rambunctious. <laughs> I was just, a, if you let, if you let me off the leash for a minute, I was in, I'd get in trouble somewhere. So I, they put me in Catholic schools and, and department of defense schools back and forth, hoping that the, the sisters uh, would kind of tether me down. And that, that's where I started my high school drinking when I was in high school and uh, back and forth to Cuba, Key West, you know, it's 82 miles, 82 miles from Key West to Havana, Cuba. Um, so I did my high school drinking back then, nothing uh, really significant or anything like that. When my dad retired in 1973, I came back to the States. I, re I graduated high school in 1972 and uh, 50 years ago, my God, they just had a high school reunion right here on the beach in Destin. We were at a conference somewhere. They were yelling about that. But um, so dad retired in 1973. We came back to the States and I immediately joined the Air Force on my 19th birthday. I had my apprenticeship in carpentry already done. I joined the Air Force to become an Air Force carpenter and off I went without the supervision of my parents at 19 years old. Um, and I believe this is where my military drinking, the different stages of our career drinking, uh, my military drinking, I started getting into a lot of trouble. But what I had was a military ID card on top of my driver's license. And every time I got pulled over uh, and I got in many car chases, um, 
when I got pulled over, they always saw my military ID card first. The reason I'm telling you this is because I have no reason to be an alcoholic. I don't believe I got it from my mother. I don't. It's just my belief. I look, believe me, I had questions. I can't find the genetic disposition anywhere except way down the family line. And it might have skipped a few generations. But I, I have no reason. I was, uh, I was raised in strict discipline. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. I'm not sure when I cross the invisible line. And if you question when you have... You know, they always tell me it doesn't matter how the donkey got in the ditch. Just get the donkey out. We'll worry about the ditch later on. And uh, so I'm not sure when I cross the invisible line, but at some point in time in my drinking career, I began to consume way too much alcohol. And like my buddy from California, Ray Melbaum, used to say, who's long since gone to the big meeting, he said, I was either drunk, getting drunk or getting off of the drunk. That's the way I did when I was drinking in the military. And it was a it was a lifestyle back then in the 70s. Uh, Vietnam was drawing down. We were a bunch of crazy people. Um, so I don't know when I crossed the invisible line, but when I came to AA and asked about it, they told me, they said, Chip, if God had showed you the invisible line, you would have went and got a stick and tried to pull vault over. I would have done anything to not become an alcoholic. It was just in the cards for me, right? I had a, I was crazy, uh, crazy wild drinking and uh, bar fights, car chases. I had a quick marriage. I can sum that up. Uh, my first quick marriage was at the Wee Chapel of Love on Gandhi Boulevard, and the sheriff showed up. So we'll stop right there, and we'll move on to the second marriage. I met wife number two when I was in a car chase from wife number one chasing us because she found us at a bar. See, this is my – I can sum it all up right there. Bill Wilson did it perfectly. If you're new, we, you know, of course, we have the big book. But uh, 13 years later, they published the 12 and 12, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And Bill Wilson really dug deep. And this is what really helped me out identify myself as an alcoholic. On page 53 of the 12 and 12. But it is from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We, here it comes. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. And here's how that goes. If you liked me, I would hurt you. Because I didn't want people getting close. But man, if you loved me, I would hurt you over and over and over again because you wouldn't leave. And I don't know where all that stuff came from. I was not raised that way at some point in time. I just rewired myself. And... uh I was I got married the second time rapidly, and I had three children in that marriage. And I this is the three children and the wife that I dragged through my alcoholism. We were married for twenty years, and uh, and there is nothing funny. I remember one time I used to back it when I was young in sobriety, and we'd gather together, and people would tell jokes about alcoholic jokes and Al-Anon jokes. And finally, this guy walked up to me one time. I was telling this Al-Anon joke giggling and laughing and the guy said yeah he said chip have you really taken your inventory i said yes i have he said do you you find anything funny about what you did to that wife and those children or those parents and those siblings i said no not really and it changed my entire perspective about the disease the family disease of alcoholism there was nothing funny about what I did to those children and that wife. And my parents didn't understand me. My siblings couldn't understand me. Um, I, I became completely unpredictable. Blackouts were occurring. I, and uh, in 1987, I had three trips to the emergency room in rapid succession. 
It was always on a Sunday night. And listen, all the time, it's when I was not drinking. It's when I had stopped drinking that I would have the physical problems. I could maintain just that level of alcohol to keep me out of trouble and then stop me from shaking. I was 32 years old. That's what alcohol did to me. I had a successful military career. I made rank really fast. And I just, but alcohol was taking me down quick. Um, on the third trip to the emergency room, they locked me up. They took my clothes. They detoxed me on Xanax. They pumped me up full of nitroglycerin. And uh, I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, and they kept me downstairs in the emergency room. And here's my entire, when I look back over my past history, I look back and I started to realize why we had a program called Al-Anon and Alateen. This was on the 26th of April, 1987. If you notice, that's not my sobriety date. That's when I entered the emergency room and got for the last time. They were pacing me up and down after they treated me medically and pumped me up full of stuff. And I had to pace up and down in the emergency room. There were all kinds of people in there with the flu and the cold. And that wife and those three children were sitting there and they had those eyes watching me left and right. And finally, she ran up to the desk and she started tapping on the desk. And she told that person, you have got to do something with him. And they said, ma'am, we are doing something with him. We are having to pace him up and down to try and sober him up till the drugs take effect on him. And she said, oh, you do not understand the swan song of the Al-Anon. You do not understand. She said, he has done this a hundred times. And if you don't lock him up, he will do it a hundred times again till he dies. That's why I understand that there's a family disease called alcoholism. And it had affected them far more than I ever realized. What I couldn't tell anybody when they locked me up was I was having all these problems when I was not drinking. It's not when I was drinking, it's when I was not drinking. But I would do anything to protect my right to drink. So um, they mandated, they kept me in there for 10 days. They detoxed me on drugs. They took me off the drugs. They weaned me out of it. They pushed me out, made me sign all this paperwork, command-directed meetings. I had to go to AA meetings, and they sent me on my way. And there I was, stark, raving, sober. They had taken me to two AA meetings while I was up in the nut ward. And I could not stand it. I didn't understand how to talk to the people. I didn't know how to tell them I couldn't stand being sober. What do I do? What do I say? I'm just going to play the game. You know, I do not want visitation at my home. I'll say I'm an alcoholic, but I knew darn well I wasn't. By God, I was a 32-year-old hero. I had ribbons down my chest and stripes down my arm. Hey, no way I'm an alcoholic. I didn't understand that the big book, <laughs> it's really important to have one, but it's really, really important to read it especially reading it with somebody else that has been through it. On page 52, it described me perfectly. It, I was a prey to misery and depression. I couldn't seem to be a real use to anybody. I was full of fear. I, 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 was, I was the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with my personality. Alcohol was the only thing that let me cope with life, right? And with my family, all these AA people seemed to be happy and content. And I couldn't stand being sober, but I wasn't going to tell anybody that. So I just attended meetings for six months and three weeks, and I got drunk. It's, I didn't have a slip. I couldn't stand being sober. I couldn't take it one more minute. And my little brain said, you got an opportunity here. you got a chance that if you just take a drink, you got a 50% chance it'll be all right. And if you can go back to the way you used to be, your teenage drinking, you know, I'm 32 and I'm looking to go back to when I was 16. It ain't going to happen. So I came back after three days of drinking. It was not successful. I could not drink like a normal person. Those people were crazy. 
drinking like normal people. So I, I didn't know what to do. So I came back and I talked to this old timer that got sober in 1966. He was a member of my home group. And I said, what do I do? I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Right. And he says, Chip, he said, if you're like me and see, that was the thing that hooked me for all this period of time. I was running around trying to find people and listen to people that were just like me. I couldn't hear anybody that was just like me. They were all talking happy, joyous, and free and going to AA picnics, parties, whoopee parties. And I'm just sitting at home in the dark, you know, trying to survive 23 hours a day because I can survive in a meeting. I just listen in the back of the room. And then I go home and I terrorize my family and I terrorize all the guys that work for me at work. That works good in the military, but it sure doesn't work good at home. I come home to those teenagers and they would say, Dad, why don't you leave your stripes at the door? Because they don't work in here. And I thought all I had to do was just manipulate them and terrorize them. They'd do exactly what I would say. So then I talked to the old timer and he said, if you're just like me, he said, he said, he said Chip, do you think 100% of you thinks that you need to be sober? I said, well, yeah. I, I said, I don't feel like I'm a member because I still want to drink. And he said, uh, he said, Chip, have you ever thought about reading the 12 and 12? I said, no, they always told me that was entertainment. You know, Bill Wilson just wrote it so he could get some money. I, you know, you listen to crazy things in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's better if you run it by an old timer to see what's really going on. He said, well, why don't we go to the 12 and 12? And you guys read it at the, you know, the broken elevator meeting. The very first thing that you wrote, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in nature, that are, it practices a way of daily living can expel the obsession to drink. And I thought, what a minute. There it is. It's well, you can't see it on my back screen. The 12 and 12 on page 15. And I said, wait a minute. You mean that 12 steps are designed to expel the obsession to drink? He said, yeah, meetings aren't designed to do that. Meetings are designed for the fellowship. The 12 steps are designed to expel the obsession to drink. I said, wow. He said, Dr. Bob didn't want to quit drinking when he came. They didn't even have a then, but they, oh, no. Uh-uh. But he spent, you know, Bill Wilson spent four and a half hours with with him in the gatehouse. And all of a sudden he found a guy that could talk his language. And he started listening to, to stuff that his brain was saying coming out of the mouth of somebody else. So I had a lot of questions. If you're new and you got a lot of questions, see if they're just like mine, right? I can remember I had a lot of questions in 1987. So I went to the old timers and sponsors because I think they're going to give me the magic. I'm going to get the Evelyn Woods speed reading course of AA. They're going to give me the secret password, and I won't have to read that darn big book that was, you know, it's printed in 39. It's way outdated, right? So just give me the secret passage. So I'm sitting there, and I'm going, okay, I got questions. What am I going to do about these crazy families, the kids? And he looked at me, and he says, uh, Chip, we have this thing called a big book. And in the big book, there's a chapter called The Family Afterwards. We hope that you read it. And if you have questions, you come and ask me. I said, oh, yeah, well, what am I going to do about the wife? He says, Chip, he said, we have a big book. And in that chapter, there's a chapter, in a big book, there's a chapter called To the Wives. We hope you read that. And if you got questions, come and ask me. I said, well, okay, what am I going to do about the job? He said, Chip, you know, we're going to give him a 56-year medallion in September. This is 34 years ago. He's answering these questions to me. I said, what am I going to do about, what am I going to do about my job? He said, Chip, in the big book, there's a chapter called the employer to the employers. Go read that chapter. If you got any questions, it will describe you and your, and your employment to you. Then you come and ask us. I said, what do I do about God? He said, oh, come on, Chip. We got this big, you haven't even read the index, have you? We got a thing called the big book. And then there's a chapter called we agnostics tell you everything you need to know about this thing called God. I thought, what's going to happen to me? He said, we got a chapter called A Vision for You. It will tell you what's going to happen to you. I said, but my whole life is screwed up. 
He said, Chip, we have a chapter called There is a Solution. There's a solution for my whole life? He said, yeah. How am I going to do that? He said, Chip, we have a chapter called How It Works. You see, if you're new, my sponsor never told me how to fix my marriage. He never told me what to do about them darn teenagers. He never told me what to do about my wife. He never told me what to do about my parents, my job, God, nothing. What my sponsor did was he took me to where the answer was. And they finally got it through to me. that the old timers always said, the answers to all your problems in life lie within the blue covers of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and all the rest of our literature. And that's where I began to find my answers. He took me to people that could understand. See, I still had this little nagging thing, right? What am I going to do? I still had this thing that, you know, I have like an escape ripcord that if it gets really bad, I drank before, I can do it again. So he took me over to Mac Brewster in, in uh, Covina, California. I went to the Palm Springs Roundup in 1989. I had a year and a half sober. I get to meet all these people I've been listening to on cassette tapes. And I said, Mac, when did I become an alcoholic? And he says, Chip, if you're like me, old timers do that. They'll hook you. Chip, if you're like me, you probably became an alcoholic when you quit bragging about how much booze you drank and started lying about how much you really did. And then I listened to the other old timer in my home group. He said, I drank just enough alcohol for the I don't give a darn light to come on. I didn't give a darn about the kids. I didn't give a darn about the job. I said, man, I can relate to that. I, can, I knew exactly when that happened. And then he said, he said Chip, he said, Maybe your drinking did not prove your alcoholism. I said, well, that's not in the big book. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to, you know, either I, if I ain't convinced, I'm supposed to belly up to the nearest bar stool and try some controlled drinking. He said, oh, Chip, he said, you didn't turn two pages, did you? And I see these old timers knew this big book. I didn't know it, but they were teaching it to me. I was just trying to skip around. And he said, if you were to turn two pages where it said, try some belly up to the nearest bar stool and try some controlled drinking, turn two pages that says, if you're not sure you've crossed that invisible line, try staying sober for one year. If you are really, really alcoholic, scant chance that you'd be able to do that on your own. And I'm like, oh, I never saw that before. He said, yeah, you gave up at six months. The big book asked you for a year. So you do half measures and half measures availed you fill in the blank. And I'm like, oh, now we got comedians. The old timers are now comedians, right? The big book only asks two questions. If you're new, we don't have a gazillion questions to ask. The big book asked me two questions on page 44. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. Boom, game changer. I did, I'm asking a gazillion questions, and it only asked me two. The magic I learned was that everything I needed to know was in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the most unread literature that we seem to have in this century. And I, the guys that I sponsor and my sponsor all believe in the big book. We pass that on to the grand sponsees and the great grand sponsees and stuff like that. We do listen. I got eleven grandchildren. If we water this thing down with my gene pool, come on. <laughs> oh, I got eleven seats I need available. I don't need this thing watered down. I stay in the big book, and I ask other people to stay in the big book too. Right? So I didn't think I had it. Now here, let me tell you the one that really hooked me because of my past experience. Rose got up to the podium at the Crestview Monday Night Big Book Group. She was a member of my home group, and she made a statement one time that came out of nowhere. She said, alcohol gave me a license to act in an unsociable manner. 
and always excuse it off by saying, I am so sorry. I would have never done that if I hadn't have been drinking. How many times did I use that excuse? My God, I thought about all those times I used it with the kids. I'm sorry I couldn't be there with the wife. I'm sorry I didn't get you this. I'm sorry, but, you know, man, it, they ring my chimes. Step one was done, 100% done. It didn't mean, it didn't mean that the little thought of drinking went away. I'm telling you, step one was done. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, and I admitted my life was unmanageable. Boom. Now I have to work the rest of the steps to get rid of a little chip on the shoulder there. If you believe in a higher power, I ask that you think about believing in a lower power that might be out there. Because I got a question. I stood, I stood at, the, at a podium at the Florida State Convention, 1,500 people sitting in the room. And I said, how many people got sober in 1987? Three people. That's why I know that there's got to be a lower power out there that draws people away from alcoholics and arms. They don't all drink. They don't all die. A lot of them go away going, is that all you got to offer me? Is that all there is? So I went on to step two and I started rocking in these steps and my sponsor took me through every one of these steps. Here's, here's the biggie I want to tell you about step two. I got what, 21 minutes left. I did not want to admit Step two, because I knew what you wanted me to say. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I knew what you meant. Don't don't try and cloak the words. You want me to admit I'm insane. No, I ain't going. So I told my sponsor, I'm not admitting I'm insane. Look at these stripes. Look at these medals. I'm not insane. I am a success. He said, Chip, didn't you get locked up in a mental ward? I said, that was only 10 days. It didn't count. He said, well, he said, why don't we find out what Bill Wilson is talking about, about the word insanity? I don't think that he wanted you to admit that you were clinically insane, or he would have put that in the step. So he took me to the big book on page 36, talking about Jim, the guy that put one ounce of whiskey in his milk. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Next sentence. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. And he wasn't done at that, right? He went right down the page. There was a sound a parallel with our sound reason. There inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink, second mention. Our sound idea, our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea went out. And then the justification for a spree was inside. I said, stop. He just kept going. The power of being able to use the big book to help a new person. He took me right to it and he proved it in black and white. Bill Wilson didn't want me to meet, admit I was clinically insane. When it came to alcohol, I had been strangely insane. I was done with that. And then he took me on to step three. And I, you know, I did it like a whole lot of people might have done it. I turned, went in the bathroom, shut and locked the doors. You know, those kids used to hear me throwing up in there. <laughs> I don't want to meet. Can you imagine them hearing me pray? Oh, that's a catastrophe. So I turn on the shower. I turn on all the faucets. If I'd have had a musical thing in there, I would have turned on. I needed background. You know, the uh, the acoustics in the bathroom were terrible. They could hear you all over the house, right? So I did this thing, and I opened my big book up, and I got to the third step prayer, and I recited the third step prayer, and I waited. I waited because it says that step, if honestly and humbly taken, an effect sometimes a great one is felt at once. And I waited for my effect. Didn't come till much later. 
notice that there, there's never a time factor as far as the, the gifts that you're going to receive. You're going to get them. They just don't tell you exactly when you're going to get them. So I went through a whole lot of stuff going through all the steps. Oh, that's why I love the broken elevator. That's, you know, the, the elevator is broken. You got to take the steps, right? And I went through all these steps and all of a sudden I got guys that are asking me to sponsor them and all that little thing on my shoulder about the drinking slowly started to disappear. And I didn't notice it. It was like a ninja that just started disappearing right about step 10, right about step 11. We'd entered the world of the spirit. I, I wasn't cured of alcoholism, but all of a sudden I can live in a world where there's alcoholism and I am not drawn like a moth to the light. And it was... Oh, my life became weird. I, you know, steps one or years one through nine, I got to take off a year three and a half and go to Guam for uh, for two years. And I learned all about AA on Guam. They never did it right until I joined. And then we all did it right. And then I left Guam and I went to Biloxi for 10 months to Keesler Air Force Base where I retired. And I went to Mississippi AA meetings and then I retired and I came back. And a lot of stuff happened to me. Um, we were, you know, we were doing AA, we were making meetings and stuff like that. But a year nine, I got divorced. I could not put that marriage back together again. Um, I got actually at year 10, I got divorced and I, you know, I stayed single for a while. I started dating a girl in my home group. We got married. It was a camelot marriage, completely bulletproof, could not have failed. Her sponsor was my sponsor's wife, you know, mm. well, I mean, I, I, I had done the Rubik's Cube of AA marriages, and here, well, this is my third marriage. It was not going to fail. But what had happened was I started that construction business, and I was really crazy busy, and I wasn't telling people, you know. I, I ended up uh, living with the doctors and the lawyers and gated communities, and, and uh, you know, you could hit, hit all my garage door buttons at one time, and there's going to be Mercedes sports cars and Corvettes, and I was looking really good. I was looking so good that they laid me down in the cath lab and I had a massive heart attack called the Widowmaker at 24 years sober. And I thought, what in the heck? This is not, that ain't the big book. I was so stressed out. They told me I had to have a total lifestyle change. I'm 24 years sober. And I have a massive heart attack. And they put three stainless steel lines in my heart. And I said, that's it for that. And I started slowing down and, and just paying attention to what I was doing. Mon you know, I was, I was monitoring myself. And I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do for self-care to take care of me. I had changed so much. Eight months later, I was divorced. Just because I changed, she didn't want to go along with that change. I was getting rid of everything. We ended up getting divorced. And now I'm sitting there, and I'm going, oh, my God, I've been divorced three times. My whole life is crazy. What do I do? What do I do? And they took me. Remember that thing in the 12 and 12? But it was from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. I never realized I could I could work these 12 steps on my alcoholism, but I was not working them on my relationships. So at, at year 25, they took me back through the steps yet one more time. I don't know how many times I've been through them. This time I was crosshaired on relationships and my defects of character and my shortcomings in the relationships. You see, here's what happens. I can be happy, joyous, and free, and I can go to all these meetings and stuff like that. But what you do not hear a lot about uh, for the people that have time in the program, it's the dark side when it comes. You know, Bill Wilson forecasted it, and uh, and I I was not ready for it, and I went completely dark for 13 months. I was going back through the steps. It's almost like I locked myself up and I retreated myself, and uh, and I just I disengaged. I wasn't, you know, I just went kind of back crap crazy 
I was like a wounded tiger locked up in a cage somewhere. And if you would have reached in to help me, I would have clawed you. Just stay away from me. I was hurt. That Camelot marriage was never supposed to be damaged like that. But I went back through the steps. They pulled me out of it. I went through the steps. I went through the steps. I got it. And then I found, here's what I found out. That I had a habit of making work widows and work orphans. I would work myself and try to accumulate so much stuff that my family didn't even know where I was. And then I did the same thing with AA when I got sober. And they said, you know what? He wasn't here when he drank and he ain't here when he's sober. I would go off and go around the world. I'd go to Hawaii and I'd go to all these conventions and stuff like that. And there was the family back at home. So I just had this habit of making widows and orphans, whatever I was doing. And I had to stop doing that. And I changed and I became a much better person. And I went and I uh, went through the steps so uh, so harshly on those. I, I found out every defect of character I had and every shortcoming that I had. And I'm still finding out more. And my sponsor made me find an alternative to fix that whenever it cropped up. So I had to know when this cropped up, I had to hit it with that before it started festering itself out. And it changed my whole sobriety. Then I could start seeing what they were talking about. At year 28, I got hit. Uh, uh, I had, I told you about my beautiful al wife. We've been friends for 14 years going to conferences together. Her daughter, Amanda, who's now my bonus daughter, we don't use the word step in our household, is my bonus chosen daughter. It's a, used to sponsor my former spouse. You might want to write that down. That's a hard, tangled web that we weave. Imagine that. And she played Cupid with me and her mother a long time later. So we had these intimate relationships. I, I, Angie and I got married, and uh, when I started, when we started dating and we got married, I had 26 years and she had 24 years. And her sponsor said, You guys got. 50 years together, you ought to be able to put something together and make it work. And we did. Uh, we're coming up on eight years. Today, I just put it on Facebook. Today, eight years ago, is when I lied to her. And I told her we should go to the beach at Jacksonville Beach and go get fish tacos. And I had the photographers up underneath the Jacksonville Pier. And my family was sitting in an Italian restaurant waiting for the outcome. And I drove her to the fish taco restaurant right next to the Jacksonville Pier. And I said, let's take a walk out on the beach. And I had the engagement ring in my pocket. And photographers took all these Zoom photos and stuff like that. And they turned it into a great big musical collage and a video. And uh, so we got to relive that again today. That was eight years ago today. On September the 8th, we're going to be married for eight years. It's a, my beyond my wildest drunken dreams. What is the biggest joy that I get out of this stuff is being able to look at my the greatest asset that I have, which is my dark past. Why do we talk about crazy things and dark times that have happened in sobriety? Because some people don't talk about them. And when they get when people get hit with it, they don't know what to do. And uh, I, I remember Mike, my uh, my precious buddy, Mike McGillip, that passed away with COVID uh, not too long ago, was doing all these conferences and stuff like that. We were good friends for years. And he had just come down to the beach house and stayed with me and Angie on his way down to Miami to tape a conference. And I said, man, it's too soon with COVID. He said, he said, nah, nah, you know, and uh, anyhow, I have the, the joy of, of uh, all these people in my life. Mike asked me to do a conference one time on Zoom called COVID or no COVID. And then he asked me to do another one called <clears throat> surviving the trials and low spots that lie ahead 
parentheses, the darkness of sobriety. And he says, Chip, he said, I've heard you talk about that. Not many people talk about surviving the dark times. And I said, well, what I learned was Bill Wilson wrote it in there and he prepared me for it. And it says, for if the alcoholic fails to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice and others, he cannot surmount the certain trials and low spots that lie ahead. And what happened was I ended up with a lot of trials and low spots later on in sobriety. At year 28, we lost a fortune. Uh, we, we retired when we moved to the beach. Um, and Angie retired from the state of Alabama. I sold the construction business. I sold it to a family member. I'll make this really quick. We sold it for an extraordinary amount of money. And we took off and went off into our retirement. I had military retirement. She had state retirement. I had all the medical and dental health care, all that. Everything was golden. We were off on going to Bahamas. We were going to Key West for a month, going to, you know, we did what we were dreaming of doing. Took off every weekend. We're going to conventions. And life was great. Nine months after we had sold that business, we got an email and it says, we quit. There'll be no more money coming in. We were supposed to get a check every week for the next 20 years from that business a large check and they, it just tanked. It stopped and we instantly had to reboot and I'm in a panic mood. I call my sponsor now who's Jerry. And I said, Jerry, what do I do? I asked Jerry to be my sponsor at year 28, changing sponsors. I said, what do I do? What do we do? He said, Chip, I haven't heard you. I've heard you say what they did. I'm in panic mode. I'm not, I got to go back to work. I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm 60. Some of you, this is 2015. And he says, I've heard everything that you have said about what they have done to you. What I've not heard you say is where God was in this entire sentence. And I said, God has not got a darn thing to do. I clean that up. God has not got a darn thing to do with what they did to us. And here's what he did. He says, Chip, I need you to go find God and then call me back. Go find God in this entire situation where you think that your life has been destroyed, your life and Angie's life financially destroyed. You've got financial insecurity running right up and down you from your toes to your ears. So I called him back and I said, I found God. And he said, well, where did you find God? I said, well, I said, I found God in a mirror. He said, that's where I thought you'd find him. I said, here's the deal. I orchestrated the entire sale of that business. I orchestrated the sale of two houses to my daughter for the price of one. I got in all the lawyers. I brought in the state of Florida. I Everything was set up, all the contracts. He said, yeah, you made it bulletproof, didn't you? Just like that third marriage. I said, yeah. He said, and it failed, didn't it? I said, yeah. I said, man, what do I do? He said, I don't think that you have lost your concept of God at 28 years sober. I think that you have lost your connection with God. He said, I think your, con your conscious contact with God will always still be there and it's always not changed. But I don't think that you have done the spiritual exercises to enhance and enlarge your spiritual life. In other words, I think maybe you have been on spiritual cruise control. I didn't have any idea that that's what had happened. I had gotten so busy having fun and enjoying all the benefits of hard work and, uh, and going and enjoying AA and sponsoring guys and every, all the guys I was sponsoring was good and stuff like that. You know, there was, oh man, everything was great. And I was on spiritual cruise control. And what happened was it shook me to the rafters. So I said, what do I do? And this is the important thing that I wanted to share. 
my sponsor got today's got 45 years sober. So he's got 11 years more than I do. 11 more years of experience. He said, let me tell you what happened to me. Oh, here we go. You mean somebody else is just like me? He said, let me tell you what I had to do. I got nine minutes left. He said, do you believe that you are still running on God 8.0? I said, what? He said, do you think you're still running on God 8.0? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, do you realize that all the rest of us have upgraded to God 10.0? I said, no, you can't do that. It's not in the big book. Isn't it funny when you try to nail your sponsor saying something ain't in the big book? He said, oh, it's in the big book. That's the sentence we just talked about. You can upgrade your concept of God because it will help your connection. I thought God was right here instead of God being all-powerful and almighty that could help me with all my problems. Remember, that was the entire purpose, right? To solve all my problems. So I had to go back into the big book again. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read our AA literature, and I'm going to ask you to go outside and read another spiritual book that I read, right? I said, what am I supposed to read? So I'm not going to tell you the title of it. It's non-conference approved, but it was in the 1400s by a monk. Anyhow, he says, I need you to start practicing God. I said, I'm, I'm not, he said, just start practicing God. I said, well, what do I do? He said, in everything that you see, I want you to recognize God, whether it's the flowers on the bushes or the, the lizards going out of your house, the sand on the beach. I want you to acknowledge God in everything, whether it's the love of your wife or the children or the joy of, of I want you to acknowledge it. I said, well, what am I doing? He said, you are practicing the presence of God. He said, do you realize that your heart is a muscle? Your brain is a muscle and spiritual exercise begets spiritual muscle. So what he did at year 28 all the way to year 30 was he gave me spiritual exercises to take every single day that I had never taken to 28 years prior to that. And what happened was it enhanced and enlarged my spiritual life. I can't tell you how it happens. It's just, I don't, I think if he would have had me do push-ups and pull-ups all day long, yelling, God one, God two, God three, same. But it was the mission that I was on. And it was the spiritual exercises that I was taking that did all that stuff. And my life changed again. It morphed again at year 30. And here it is four years later. We've had a lot of stuff that we encountered. Angie and I have, a you know, an uh, at 31 years sober, I had four major surgeries in a row. I'm talking, they pulled my carotid arteries out. They sliced me like a vampire, pulled my carotid arteries out, snipped them, cleaned them, put them back in, stitched me back up. Both shoulders had to be rebuilt. And every one of those had to have anesthesia. I had to have a ventilator tube down my throat. And then I had to have pain medications afterwards. And that was the predecessor to the big one in March of 2020 at the onset of COVID. They took me into the emergency room on March the 3rd. They did surgery on me on March the 9th. It was a quadruple bypass. March the 11th, COVID was classified as a pandemic. And this new thing in our lives came out called Zoom. I don't know if any of y'all had even known what Zoom was, but it was. I was amazed when I had to do all that research for that conference that I did, COVID or no COVID. I had to do the chronological. I, I did. I went chronologically from the moment Bill Wilson put a nickel in the payphone, which was an electronic communication of picking up the phone connected to the wire long across on the telephone pole. 
the start of AA was started electronically. And people say, oh, that's electronic AA. No, 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 no. It ain't real AA. Ah. Look at the people that we have sober. They got sober since March 2020 when the Zoom pandemic hit. Do you realize, like I did, I found out. The connecting of the dots, this is the God that I found the presence of. The connecting of the dots that God did to prepare us for what had happened was that one year prior to the pandemic, a Chinese immigrant that had started up Zoom merely gave it to the public for free. He had made so much money on it with big businesses in the military. He said, I hereby give you Zoom for free one year before the Zoom, before the pandemic hit. If that had not happened, <laughs> I don't know what we would have done. But I was laying in the cardiac recovery unit on March the 11th during a period of time that I had left and gone into the emergency room. They assigned one of the newcomers in my group, the responsibility of finding out what Zoom was, starting a Zoom meeting and getting the link to me because they knew I was having a quadruple bypass. So after they did the surgery on me and I woke up in the recovery and I had to stay in the re uh, cardiac recovery for 10, for 10 days, they opened my laptop up. They typed in the information and all of a sudden, boom, there was my home group. I'm like, what in the heck is this? And they said, Chip, this is called Zoom. This is a Zoom meeting. And I'm like, I am loaded on pain medication. That means my body is stapled back together again. They split you like a coconut. And I said, what is Zoom meeting? What an amazing, amazing thing that Alcoholics Anonymous did. How they bandied together. And they came together. And all of a sudden, from a start of somebody mentioning the word Zoom, it took off like a rocket. And then we had thousands and thousands of these things called Zoom meetings. And all and we got to see the importance of people that, that got sober on Zoom. Uh, we don't have to nickname them Zoom babies. And we don't have to say, oh, if you got sober in the good old days, you know, back in the 80s, these are the good old days. Every one of us in this Zoom room right now and around the world is a part of AA history. Can you imagine when they come out with the fifth edition, what they're going to talk about when it comes to the Zoom era and what happened with the pandemic and how AA morphed? AA, and this is my opinion, especially with the research that I've done, I'm not an authority, but in my 34 years of watching this and watching the communication levels change between, you know, pay phones to, to pagers, to cell phones, to, you know, remember the cell phones where you had a, a brick battery, it looked like a 12-volt car battery and you had to carry it. The... Being able to watch all that, we are a part of the miracle of AA history. We got to watch Liz B., who just passed away a couple of days ago with 69 years of sobriety, have a meeting. And she got to be a speaker at a meeting. She had long since not been able to go to look at all the old timers that could no longer come to the meetings because of their health or their physicalness or, or uh, crippled up or whatever. And all of a sudden, they're having meetings from their living room. And they're doing speaker meeting. You could see the joy coming back out in their lives again. And it was a great, it was a great event. And all of us, you know, thousands of people trying to get in and out of the room. We had the very first ever AA International on Zoom. We had the very first uh, homecoming at Dr. Bob's house, uh, Founders Day. We had all these conferences with a thousand people sitting in the rooms. 
Al-Anon launched, everybody launched, and they went on all these crazy things. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, cherish these moments that you're in because you are a part of history when Alcoholics Anonymous changed its communication to bring you into the doors. And now what we do uh, for the last minute is when we talk about this thing called the 12 step, a lot of people think when they talk about the 12 step, I used to do this a lot. I think about the central office. I'm going to answer the phone. I'm going to go on 12 step calls and stuff like that. But when we talk about having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics. It doesn't say only newcomer alcoholics. So this is what I want to say to you. All the people that are in this room and all the people that I get to talk to, I don't know how many times I've got to talk on Zoom. Here's what I ask you. We have a lot of people that are not coming back to AA because they hate Zoom, right? We have a lot of people that are not coming back to to face-to-face meetings because they got very comfortable in Zoom for whatever reason. I ask that we go back to the old days. Remember when they pulled up in your driveway and they knocked on your door and they said, hey, man, I'd love it if you'd like to go to a meeting with me. We got the car running right out here. We'll go get some ice cream at Denny's afterwards or whatever and invite them back in to AA. Because here's my question. Where are all your home group members that you used to sit in meetings with together? They didn't all drink and they didn't all die. Some of them are sitting at home. And I think it's time we go invite them back in. My name is Chip and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.